Welcome to the Simple Church Podcast. We'd like to thank you for taking a few moments out of your day to listen to what God is doing here in Reynoldsburg, Ohio. We hope today's message will be encouraging and uplifting to you. To learn more about Simple Church, maybe you'd like to be our guest for a service, please visit our website at www.simplechurchohio.com. There you'll find more information about us, location, service times, and even online giving opportunities. And now, here's today's message. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning. Welcome to Simple Church. My name is Aaron. I'm the lead pastor here at Simple Church. And uh, we are so glad that you chose to be here with us today on this Sunday morning. First, let me say this. We have a lot of guests here today. Can we show our guests some love? Give them a round of applause and welcome them. Let them know we are glad they are here today. And uh, so thank you so much for choosing to be here with Simple Church. So we are in the middle of a series called Heroes. That's why the big sign on the stage, and it's called the subtitle being God of the Underdogs. And before I jump into that and tell you a little bit about that, I have one quick announcement because we'll we'll wrap up this series. We've got another three weeks after this one that we're going to continue in this series talking about underdogs from the Old Testament. But after this series, I'm going to do something I've never done before, and I'm actually quite nervous to do it. I'm going to give you an entire series where you tell me what to preach. I'm asking you, this congregation, what is it that I could teach on that would help move you forward in your spiritual journey? What is it? Because I know that everybody in here is at a different place in your spiritual journey. Some of you are here today, and you may not even believe in the God that I'm going to talk about today. So maybe there's something I could speak on that would encourage you or or help you get to the next place where God wants to be in your journey. And so here's what I've done. I am giving you an opportunity to tell me exactly. Not right now. Don't shout at me, okay? But if you'll pull out your app, we have a Simple Church app. If you'll pull out your app. Now, if you don't have the app, the great thing is, is within the app, there's a little button that says share this app. So if you don't have the app, look to somebody on your right or on your left. In fact, do that now and ask them. Do you got the app? Go ahead and do that now. Ask them. And if they say no, you can say, I can help you with that. And help them get the app. Because on the app, when you open it up, there is a button that says vote now. Feel free to do that today, even during service. That's not going to upset me. I got, I got delivered of, of being upset that people were playing on their phones a long time ago because this is just this generation. You're going to read your Bible or take notes on your app, and maybe you're playing Flappy Bird or, or, you know, or Angry Birds. I'm not sure what you're doing, but God bless you anyway. You're here in the presence of God, and I'm happy with that, okay? But if you click on that button, it opens up a form, and it says, what do you, wanna, what do you want me to preach on? And so I'm going to spend some time when this series wraps up here in the next few weeks, and I'm going to preach on what you want to hear about. So this is your time. Take that opportunity, vote now, and go ahead and do that, okay? Now, we are in this series, Heroes, Gods of the Underdogs, and what we're talking about is how God chose to use underdogs all throughout the Bible. And the Old Testament specifically is where we are looking because God chooses to take people that are counted out, that are that are by society standards, worthless, or they have labels that they're fighting against, or there's, there's, they've all got all kinds of reasons why they can't 
be something great. See, this is the God that we serve, the God of the impossible. And he takes people with impossible circumstances, impossible life stories, and turns them around and makes them into heroes. That's what an underdog is. And so we're talking through all that. And, uh, and today, I'm actually going to do something I don't normally do a lot of. This is the second thing I'm going to do that I don't normally do. I'm going to spend some time telling stories today. And, and I usually, when I tell stories, I, I, I tend to preach and I share some of my stories, but I've got a really long story that I'm going to tell today. So, so we're going to do that. And, and really what we're going to do, let me revisit where we've been in this series. The first week we talked about David. David was an underdog. And he was, before he was King David, before he was Goliath, giant slayer David, he was this kid who was just a shepherd. And so we talked about the first week about overcoming qualifications, where you don't feel like I'm qualified to do this kind of job. And uh, thank you, Joshua. And so that was our first week. We talked about, thank you, I appreciate that, overcoming those, those, that underdog excuse, those objections that I'm not qualified enough to do this. And then the second week, we looked at a guy named Jacob. And Jacob had a label that had been put under or put on him when he was just born. And he had this underdog excuse that he had to overcome of, well, my label says I'm something else. And if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, I want to encourage you to get, get the app, listen to the podcast. It'll be a blessing to you. Listen to them on your way to work. We do something around here called redeeming the time. We find a way to take those, those minutes, those 15, 20 minutes, and redeem them and allow God to speak to our hearts. So you can redeem your time on your way to work or on your treadmill. Listen to a podcast. It'll be a blessing to you. But today, in order to tell the story of our next underdog, I actually have to revisit an underdog we've already talked about. And we're going to revisit the story of David. Because I'm going to tell the story of a guy named Mephibosheth. Now with a guy, a a name like Mephibosheth, you have to be convinced of one thing. His parents hated him. (laughs) You don't name your kid Mephibosheth, you know what I'm saying? Unless you just absolutely don't like this guy. But so I'm going to tell you the story of, of Mephibosheth, but his story... He had to overcome the excuse that he was just too far gone, that he was worthless, that nobody could use him. He had to overcome that. So the big idea for today, if you're going to go away with something, this is what I want you to go away with, is that even when we think we are too far gone, God invites us up to his table. Amen? Even when you think you're too far gone, God invites us up to the table. So today I'm going to pray before we start. Now, our Connect pastor, Tim Tool, is I'm very excited. He's actually in Newark. I'm not excited he's in Newark, that he's not here with us, you understand. But I'm excited. He's ministering today at a church called Life Change Church. And we're going to pray for him and we're going to pray for the services. So let's do that now. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to be here with this congregation and with these people. Lord, thank you so much for this beautiful day. Thank you for the freedom that we have to proclaim Jesus in this city, and in this great nation, Lord. I pray your blessing upon us today. Open our hearts to receive your word. Lord, I pray for your blessing on Tim. May he have the grace to speak your truth in love there at Life Change Church. And Lord, may they see true life change happen in the hearts of the people there and here today. And Lord, I pray for patience, because God, 29 days is a long time to wait for the Buckeyes to take the field, but grant me patience. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, so this week we're going to look at Mephibosheth. Now, I'm just going, I'm going to shorten his name a little bit because Mephibosheth is really hard for me to say over and over again, okay? And I'm just going to call him Chef, which makes it actually sound like I'm saying Seth, but like Sean Connery style, Chef. You know what I'm saying? But anyway. <laughs> but like I said, first David. So, so let me ask you guys a question. Have you ever had anyone in your life that was hard to love? 
Ever had anybody, somebody, maybe, maybe this is probably a boss. How many of you guys know a boss? You've had a boss in your life. Don't, if you have a boss now, don't say yes now. But if you've ever had a boss in your life, they're really difficult to work with. You know that that's somebody that's difficult to love. Or maybe, maybe you're on the other side of that. Maybe you're the boss and you've got an employee that you find really hard to love. Like you have looked for every way to get rid of this person because they are really difficult. You know what I'm talking about? Well, maybe, maybe there's somebody in your life that, uh, that it's like the guy that's a few doors down from your house. He's really difficult to love. Or maybe it's, it's a classmate in school that was really hard to love. They were just annoying. They, they, their, their behaviors they were quirky and they were really hard to love. Or, or maybe it's just that guy in line at Chipotle who's ordering six burritos for people who aren't there. You know what I'm saying? That guy is really hard to love. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And if you don't, you're liars. You know what I'm saying? All of you standing in line with that guy. It's hard to love. Or maybe, maybe it's, it's an in-law that you find hard to love. I think, I think in-laws are, are like the number one people sometimes that, that we would label and say, yeah, it's, it's the in-laws. Because they get a bad rap, and I'm not really sure why that is. Anybody have an in-law that's really hard to love? Don't raise your hand. That was a trick. Don't do that. That is never a good time to raise your hand and say, they may be watching. We live broadcast these services, okay? You don't want to get caught saying, my in-law is really difficult, Aaron. You don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah, or your in-laws come to church here, right? Yeah. But, but, but if you've ever had an in-law problem, you know, that, that's a really, they can be very difficult to love at times. And so David, the, the underdog that we're going to tell his story to get to Chef's story, had an in-law problem. He had an in-law that was really hard to love. And David, David's story, let me tell you where we started out. David started out as a shepherd boy, okay? And in a, just a, one moment of his life, he was shifted. He was anointed as king by Samuel when Saul was still the king, right? Talk about awkward, right? But his whole world gets turned around. And in 1 Samuel 16, we see the story of how all that began with David being anointed king. But when we get to 1 Samuel 17, we find David is going to take sandwiches to his brother. Saul is still the king, and David's going to take sandwiches to his brother who are at war. Saul is there, and they are battling against the Philistines. And Saul and all of the army are cowering in their tents and hiding because one guy, a giant named Goliath, has defied their God and is challenging them. He's challenged them and said, if you can't beat me, then you all become my slaves. Now, why they were letting the enemy set the terms of engagement is beyond me. But this is what's happening. And everybody's sitting in their tents cowering. And David shows up on the scene with his little bag of sandwiches and says, yo, what's up, bros? What's going on? He's a little kid. We imagine he's probably 14, maybe 15 years old at this age. And he hears what's happening with Goliath. And he says, this is ridiculous. He's defying our God. So he steps onto the field with five stones and a sling to take out a man of war. And so we know from the story, David hurls the stone, hits the giant, knocks him to the ground, takes his sword and beheads the giant and he wins the day. And people begin to celebrate David. And David goes from just being now the shepherd boy and the quietly anointed king to a celebrated hero in the nation of Israel. And so David's world is completely different. And Saul, Saul, Saul knew David was there. But he started asking, who is this kid? Where is he from? What's his family's name? And the more he learned about David, the more he decided, you know what? This guy could be useful to me. I'm going to keep him around. And so he chose to keep David around. He went to David and said, hey, listen, I got this bachelor's pad up at the palace. I need you to move into it. I want you to come hang out with me. And he gives him a role in his army. He becomes a general. And David, his fame begins to spread 
across all of Israel and Judah. Now, a few things happen once David moves into the palace. The very first thing that happens is that Micah, or Michael, sorry, Michael, David's daughter, begin, or sorry, Saul's daughter. Let me start over. Michael, not Micah, Saul's daughter falls in love with David. And she, she's like, man, look at this guy, underdog, I'm having that. And so she goes, begins to pursue a relationship with David. And Saul decides to give David, Michael, a uh, hand in marriage. And the second thing that happens is that Saul's son, Jonathan, develops a friendship with David. And it's this bond, it's a, it's a friendship that goes way beyond this surface level kindness. Like we can say, we can look across our lives and say, we've got a lot of friends, but these guys were deeper than just friends. Like the, hi, how you doing? How's your kids doing? That's a nice car, good hair. Like it was, it was deeper than that. They developed this bond, this deep mutual respect and love for each other, and they established a connection. And so we're going to pick up that story in 1 Samuel 18. And today, if you need a Bible, we believe that God's Word is transforming, and we believe it's something you should have. And so if you need a Bible today, if you would just put your hand in the air, one of our service hosts will give you a Bible, but we'll also have the verses up on the screen. There they are, ta-da! And, uh, but, but let them know, and they'll get you a Bible in your hands. And, uh, but again, we're, 1 Samuel 18 Verse 1 through 4, and it picks up our story. It says, After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant, that's a promise, okay, with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan took off the robe that he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. So David and Jonathan have this special bond. And, and what's happening here, because the Bible does a great, a great job of giving us details, but I think it gives, it, it's a horrible, paints a horrible picture. Like, you know, these, these weren't like artistic guys. This is not, you know, uh, uh, the, the lady who wrote Harry Potter, uh, Rowling. This is, not, this is not her. She didn't write the Bible. And so the pictures are beautiful and we understand the emotions that are happening here. So when you read your Bible, you need to read your Bible and read it with, some imagination, understand what's happening here. Jonathan wanted everyone to know that he and David were such good pals, that he took off his his princely robe and gave it to David, essentially saying, when you see David out, you're seeing me. We are brothers. David is an official son of the king. He gave him his bow, which is part of his defenses, his sword and his belt that held him all together. He said, here's everything that I have. In other words, they, they had a very deep relationship. He said, I'm going to take down all my defenses. I want to get to know you, and I want you to know me. We're going to be best pals. You guys have a friend like that? Somebody that you're, you go deep with. You could say anything to them. They know you, and you know them. This is the kind of friendship that David had with Jonathan. And so things are going great with David. God is blessing his relationships. And here's what's happening. Saul, King Saul, is watching this and he doesn't like it. Jump down to verse 12. It says, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. See, Saul led the the kingdom in this very schizophrenic way. He was hot and cold for God. He was yes and no. He was, Lord, I'll follow you. And then the next day he wouldn't. And so God had removed his blessing from Saul's house and had placed it on David, which is why David had been anointed king. And Saul is getting a bit freaked out because he's looking around his kingdom and he realizes he's losing influence. And he's, who's gaining the influence? It's David. 
David has gained influence in the kingdom. David has gained influence with his daughter and now with his son. In fact, the entire city would sing when David, when Saul would return from war. Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. The people loved David. And whether he was king or not, he was gaining that influence as just a general in the army. We jump down to verse 28 and it says, When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. Now, I don't know about you, but that's an in-law problem. You know what I'm saying? That is a problem to have your in-law be your enemy the rest of your days. Like, can you imagine how awkward and horrible Thanksgiving dinner was? Like, seriously. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You don't have to raise your hand. It's just a trick. It was just another trick. You don't have to raise your hand. But now David is, David is uh, in, in a situation. In fact, in the next few verses we read where Saul even tries to kill David. He throws a spear at him and tries to pin him to the wall because David has become his mortal enemy. But David, of course, ran, and his wife, Michael, Saul's daughter, helps him escape out of the palace walls through a window. So now David is hiding. He's out on the run, running from Saul, running from his army because Saul has issued an official decree to kill David. David's got to go. So we shift from 1 Samuel uh, to 1 Samuel 20, and we see this interesting exchange between David and Jonathan. It says, Then David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to kill me? Look, this is David just being David. It's a little dramatic. It's like a scene from Les Mis, you know what I mean? And it's in this moment of desperation that Jonathan retorts to David's dismay. And he says, never, Jonathan replied. You're not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. But David took an oath and said, your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. Can you hear the desperation in David's voice? His friend Jonathan is stuck between two camps. His dad who he loves and David that he loves. He can't believe the worst about his dad and he also doesn't want to believe that his friend is going to die. And yet that's the reality of the situation. And look what he says. Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. It's in this moment that Jonathan made a a very important decision. He chose David. He chose to be on David's side over his father's Saul. And Jonathan was understanding that God had lifted his hand off of his father's kingdom. That Jonathan, who is the heir to the throne, that the blessing is no longer there. That David is going to be the next king. I think he's coming into an understanding that Saul's bloodline is going to be wiped out. And look what happens. In the moment that he realizes this, he makes a choice. I'll do whatever. Jonathan offers service to David, but really that should have been the other way around because Jonathan is the right heir to the king. If Saul is dead, then Jonathan is king. Instead, he offers service to David because he knows. God's all done with us. It's time for your reign. That the opportunity has been passed to David. And so he submits himself to David and asks, what do you want me to do? And as they continue talking about what David wants him to do, there's this even greater realization that comes over Jonathan. 
He realizes what's going to happen when David becomes king. Because see, during this time, it would be customary that when a king took over for another king, the bloodline of the previous king, all of his servants, all of his household, everybody that was in affiliation with that king would be wiped out. And Jonathan, I believe, finds himself in a panic. Now, you don't see this. There's no subtext that sells it or says it to you. But when you read between the lines, when you understand what they're talking about, and then you see this sudden shift in Jonathan's attitude, you have to realize he might be panicking at this moment. And he asks his friend David for something. He says, but show me unfailing kindness, like the Lord's kindness, as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. When you look at this this story and you see that Jonathan made a covenant with David, you're like, Aaron, why, why... Why a covenant? Can't he just make a promise? No. See, a promise is between me and you. And the strength of that promise is based on the integrity of me and you, right? I make a promise. We're going to be friends. I promise I'll be there at 5, you know, and I'm going to be there at 5.15, whatever. That promise is substantiated by my integrity and your integrity, right? When you sign a contract, the promise is substantiated or enforced by law at that point, right? It has nothing to do with the integrity of the two people. You hope the two people who sign the contract will hold up their end of the deal and what they agree to do. And if they don't, then the law will force their hand. But a covenant, a covenant is a promise I make between you and I where that promise is substantiated and the trust is not placed in a person, it is not placed in a legal system, that trust and the hope alone is placed in God, that he will enforce it. Marriage is such a covenant. It's a covenant. It's a promise we make before our friends and before God that we will keep. And if one of us doesn't, we pray that God will handle that, that he will handle that situation for us. And so Jonathan has asked David and made a covenant with David that he will show kindness not only to him when David takes over, but that he will show kindness to his house for as long as their two bloodlines exist. Now that's a friend. That's a promise. Can you imagine the longevity of that promise being played out? And so that's what we're going to see here. What's incredible is that David and Jonathan's bond were going to transcend generations because they made a covenant. So David begins to lay out a plan with Jonathan after he makes this covenant. He lays out a plan because he needs to know whether Saul is still angry with him. And there's a festival, a party that David is expected to be at. And so they lay out a plan to understand because David never knows whether he's going to get angry Saul or the, hey, David, it's good to see you. High five. Come on and sit with me. He never knows because Saul is so schizophrenic. And so they create this plan together and Jonathan says, whatever you need me to do, that's what I'm going to do. And so the time comes for the festival and Saul begins looking for David. He looks for him for the first day and he doesn't see him. The second day comes and David still hasn't arrived. And there's seats there where Michael and Jonathan have been, are there, but there's an empty seat between them and that's where David would normally sit. And Saul begins to question them both. But he knows that 
Michael has already lied to Saul to cover up for David and help him escape him once. So he doubts her word and he turns to his son Jonathan. He says, hey, Jonathan, where's your buddy? Where's your boy David? Because Saul was looking for David so he could kill him. And in this moment, Jonathan lies to his dad. He tells him something that isn't true. And Saul realizes that he's lost his son to David. And in 1 Samuel 20, 30 through 33, it says, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan. So he's, he's irritated and he says to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Now pause right there. You ever been so mad at somebody you just didn't know what to say to them? Like every insult you could possibly imagine is failing to come to your mouth that you, you just, your mom, and that's what comes out of your mouth? This is the first time this has ever happened because look what he does. He doesn't even know what to say to his kid and he calls out his mama. That's biblical reference that your mom jokes have been happening since like a long time ago. Okay, we're back to our story. Sorry. <laughs> you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Your mom. Don't I know that you sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither your kingdom, I'm sorry, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now, send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. And it becomes very clear to Jonathan what's happening. There's no question in his, dad, in, in his mind anymore about where his dad stands regarding David. He knows. And Jonathan retorts and says, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him, his own son. Then Jonathan knew that his father indeed intended to kill David. I guess his dad saying, bring him here so I can kill him, wasn't enough. It wasn't until the spear was thrown at him that Jonathan knew that David was going to die, that his dad was going to kill him. Maybe Jonathan just wasn't really the brightest bulb, I'm saying. But by siding with David, Jonathan was now risking his own life is what's happening. So we fast forward to the end of 1 Samuel, and a long period of time has gone by. Saul has, since the party, been in pursuit of David. We find over and over again, he's almost got him multiple times. He almost has David. And he's, David's hiding amongst rocks and caves, and Saul is now hunting him down. But we see towards the end of 1 Samuel where the Philistines have come back and Saul and Jonathan are engaged in battle. And both of them during this battle die. And David, his last encounter was with Jonathan before the party ever happened, never sees his friend again. And just as a side note, isn't it interesting that the giants that we refuse to face in our lives are the ones that in the end will take us out. Because see, the Philistines were Saul's enemies. Saul should have been fighting Goliath. And he refused to fight Goliath. And in the end, the Philistines, whom Goliath was part of, is the one who wiped out Saul's bloodline, took away his children. And Saul finds out that Jonathan is dead in the heat of the battle, and he realizes that Israel has been overwhelmed that the Philistines are going to take him. And he knows that he's going to be taken, and when they took a king, they would torture you and then do horrible things to your body and display them in horrible ways. So Saul turns to his armor bearer, and he says, Do me in. I don't want to die at the hands of the Philistines. You do me in. Let this be my choice. 
And his armor bearer looks at him and says, I, I can't do that. And so Saul says, give me the sword. And he chooses to fall on his own sword and take his life. So as to not be tortured. And at the beginning of 2 Samuel, David is distraught with sadness because of Jonathan's death. And he mourns and weeps at the loss of this incredible friend, this friend that he had a bond with, a connection with, somebody that knew him and he was known by in a way that nobody else knew him. And so, because Saul is now gone, David becomes king and God begins to bless his kingdom. And David is a conquering king. He and his mighty men have silenced all of Israel's enemies. And they have come to fear David and the God that he serves. And many years have gone by since Jonathan died in battle and it's just an ordinary day for David. And David is likely in the palace and maybe he's on a lunch break and he's sitting at his desk and maybe he's got his feet up and... He's trying those, you know, the brand new four flavors of Lay's potato chips. And he agrees with me that the biscuits and gravy are the best ones available ever. Amen. But maybe while he's on break, he hears a song. Or maybe, maybe he sees a picture. Or somehow he is reminded of his friend Jonathan. We have to believe that because his heart leads him to turn to his courts, to his advisors. And he asks a very peculiar question. After many years, his friend is gone. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. Now, Ziba, you got to understand, Ziba is a guy who is likely hiding out. Because I already told you, the servants and the bloodline of the former king would have been wiped out. But David didn't do that. David honored Saul's bloodline. In fact, a lot of them were wiped out during the battle, and so David never even had to address that. But all of the servants and anybody else would have gone into hiding for fear. So David sends for for Ziba. And can you imagine how that would go? They knock on his door. Hey, are you Ziba? Yeah. The same one that served Saul? Yeah. The king wants to see you. No. Like, like, bam, door is shut. You know what I'm saying? We're not going out. But it says they summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And here you got to imagine Ziba replies, At your service. And Ziba, when he comes before the king, he's got his I heart David button on his shirt, you know, and he's waving the big foam finger that says David's number one. Like, you know, he's letting him know, Hey, dude, I did serve that other king, but I'm on your side. You're awesome. I love you, David. Woo! He's afraid for his life. He would be. <laughs> you have to bear with me, all of you guests. I am actually this silly all the time. And it says, the king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Which you have to imagine, Ziba's going, kindness? Well, this is a good thing. And he answers David, and he says, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. David's looking for someone of, of the house of Saul that he can bless. And can you imagine finding out that the son of your best friend is still alive? He wanted to honor his commitment to that bloodline and to, to be a blessing to them. And Ziba, Ziba answers him and says, yeah, Jonathan's son's still around, but you've got to understand, he, there's, he's worthless. He's a throwaway. There's no point in blessing him. Because if you bless him, I know you're going to expect something from him. And this guy, he's lame. 
And I don't mean like he's L7 weenie kind of lame. You know what I mean? Like he's lame in his feet. And when you were lame in that day, there was no value to you. You were somebody who sat around and begged. And Ziba wants him to know, hey, this guy, he's, he's lame. There's nothing he can do for you. You can bring him, you can bless him, but he can't return the favor. He's a nothing. But David, overwhelmed to find out the son of his best friend is still alive, he asked in verse 4, he says, where is he? The king asked. And Ziba answered, he's at the house of Machir, son of Emil, and Lodabar. Now you need to understand, Lodabar was a wasteland. It's a place of desolation. It literally means nowhere. And here is Mephibosheth, or Sheth. He's flying under the radar. He's a cultural throwaway from the wrong family, the wrong bloodline. He's a nothing. And he's hiding out in Lodabar. And David says, so the king brought him from Lodabar. You need to understand, he was brought. He was not invited. Sheth didn't respond to David's invitation with a, yeah, I'll be there. He was brought to King David. Because remember, he probably was assuming that this is it. He's found me. The king didn't send his servants to kill me. He wants to kill me in front of everybody. He wants to lay me to waste like the dog that I am. So he was brought from Lodabar. And when Sheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. Look, can you imagine this scene? They roll him in in a wheelchair, and this guy who can't even stand up on his own, who couldn't even bring himself to the palace if he wanted to, lame in both of his feet, flops himself out of his wheelchair on the floor in front of David because he knows that his last few minutes of breathing is going to be spent kissing the ground. And he believes he could beg for mercy. And he bows low in front of David. And he's scared. And David being overwhelmed by seeing his best friend's kid. You know, a kid that he probably watched take his first steps or say his first words. Because see, Sheth was lame because when Saul died, his nurse picked him up and carried and ran with him and fell and dropped him and broke his legs. And so David would have remembered a boy who was played at his feet with a little David and a little Goliath play toy. Here he's seeing Mephibosheth for the first time. And maybe when he looks in the boy's eyes, he doesn't see Sheth. He sees, sees Jonathan. And he's overwhelmed because look what it says. It says, David said, Mephibosheth. He's screaming. He's probably out of his seat and running towards him. And Mephibosheth answers in the same way Ziba answers. He says, at your service. And I love this next line. Because David sees Sheth. He sees him there on the ground, probably trembling, kissing the ground. And he responds in an at your service. He realizes Sheth has no idea of his father's relationship with David. He has no idea of the covenant that was made. He has no idea of the promise that David had to bless his bloodline. And David runs towards him. And the next words out of his mouth addresses what David sees. He says, don't be afraid. For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. And you will always eat at my table. Sheth has to be completely astonished. 
overwhelmed by the love that is being poured out on him in this moment. A promise, a covenant that is being honored that was made many years before he was even on the earth, likely. And it says, Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog, an underdog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba. He doesn't even answer that. Saul's steward and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for him. And Sheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. I love the next little line. I'm not even sure why it's there, but it says, Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. We know Ziba loved his wife. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you don't have to love kids. You just have to love your wife to have 15 sons. You know what I'm saying? So we know Ziba loved his wife. And it says, Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. David took Mephibosheth and made him part of his family. And for the rest of his days, Sheth ate at his table. He was provided for. He was blessed in ways that he could not even begin to understand. Do you understand why I've told you this story today? Because I think that Sheth's story is is our story. I I think... When we look across it, we can identify with it in a lot of ways. The first question I have for you, when you look across your life, do you have a friend like David or like Jonathan in your life? Do you have somebody that you can rely on, somebody that you can lean on, somebody that knows you better than anybody else? If you would answer no to that, around here at Simple Church, let me me tell you one of the easiest ways that you can discover your David or your Jonathan. We have these things called connect group or or grow groups that we do where you can build a connection with somebody like you've never known before. You say, Aaron, you did this whole message just to advertise your grow groups? No. No. There's much more. But let me tell you something. If you need a friend like Jonathan or David, that's where you'll find him. That's where most of my friends have been found the ones that I can rely on, the ones who I know are leaning into Christ just like I'm leaning into Christ, ones that I know will be there for me, will love me, have grace for me, have mercy for me, encourage me, lift me up, pray with me. Those are friends, those that are committed to me. And I've found them. If you don't have those kind of friends, get involved in a grow group. More information's coming out of the next few weeks. Jump on board. I know you're nervous. Jump on board see what God has for you. You could be the great friend that somebody's waiting on. You could be somebody's David or Jonathan. Maybe you've got a best friend already, but you know what? Maybe somebody needs you. Get involved in a group. The second thing I'm going to say to you today is that we are all just like Sheth. All of us. All of us start in Lodibar. Do you know what that word Lodibar means? It means the absence of God's presence. It's the absence of his word. We've all come from a place where God has been absent in our lives. The Bible says that every single one of us is sinners. Every single one of us was born steeped in sin. A 
place that is absent of God's presence. There's desolation in our lives. The second way we're like Sheth is we're all lame. We're all broken and not a single one of us has the ability to get to the king on our own. Some of you today, we talked a few weeks ago and we said, you need to start bribing people and get them to church. Coerce them into being here. Compel them. Offer them lunch. Some of you may have been offered lunch to be here today. Or somebody will watch your kids. If you go to church with us, you've been brought here today. Some of you were forced to be here today. And I'm glad you're forced to be here. But we're all like Sheth. We have no way to get to God. No way of our own. We need somebody to get us there. And that's where Jesus comes into the picture. He is the one way to God. I think another way that we're all like Sheth is we all fear this encounter with the king. We all fear it. Because in light of him, we know who we are. We are a dirty dog. We know our mistakes. We know our sins. We know our life. We know our brokenness. In light of a holy God, we're afraid of that encounter. We're afraid of what he's going to say. We've been taught that God is angry, that he hates us, and that he's going to pour out his wrath so we avoid him. But let me tell you something. Just like David said to Sheth, don't be afraid. There's love. There's grace. There is mercy that God is waiting to pour out on you. Just like David did to Sheth. I also think the moment we hear about grace and we hear about God's goodness that is for us, we say, all right, what do I have to do? What do I do? Do I need to be at church every Sunday? Do I need to give this? Do I need to go there? What do I have to do? And Sheth did the same thing. He said, at your service. How, how can I earn this? There's nothing you can do to earn God's grace today. There's nothing you can do to earn a spot at his table. It is by his grace alone that we are here. And it is this free gift that he gives you that is wrapped up in his son Jesus that he offers you today. And what's crazy is that Jesus is the grandson of King David. 28 generations later, we find Jesus offering you love like was poured out on Sheth that day. table, a seat at the table. The Bible says, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever would believe would have everlasting life, an everlasting spot at his table. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that incredible? God wants you and I to sit at his table for eternity. And he's made this available to you through Jesus. Won't you accept that gift today? Won't you accept that? There's nothing you can do to get to God. There's nothing you need to do for him to accept you. Broken the way you are, he'll take you just that way. Let's pray. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Today, if you're here and you say, Aaron, you know, I've never accepted this gift of Jesus. I've never said yes to becoming a follower of Christ. But today I want to do just that. How do I do it? Accepting Christ means that you begin a relationship with Him. You begin a relationship with God. And every relationship begins with a conversation. We call it prayer when you're talking to God. That prayer sounds like this. If you want to be included in on this prayer, 
Would you let me know that you're here just by shooting your hand up and saying, Aaron, count me in on that prayer. I want to give my heart and my life to Christ today. Shoot it up. Put your hand up high. Let me see. Thank you. I appreciate your honesty. I'm going to pray, and you can repeat the words out loud, or you can repeat them in your heart. Even if you don't believe them today, you can practice for the day that you do. But it goes like this, Jesus, I believe that you're the Son of God. I believe that you came and you died and rose again so that I might be saved. Thank you for dying for me, a worthless dog, lost in my sins. Give me your Holy Spirit and show me how to live for you. And I'll spend every day doing just that. Thank you, Jesus. There's others of you that are here today that you'd say, you know, I'm, my, I'm too far gone, Aaron. I'm, I'm like Mephibosheth, but I'm too far gone in my marriage. Or I'm too far gone in my finances. Or I've lost my hope for recovery. Or for physical recovery. Relational recovery. Or I've lost hope in my career. And I'm feeling the weight or the despair of that. Maybe it's that weight is on you because of your children. But God is not a God of despair. And none of these things are too far gone for him. And so right now, Lord, I pray for those that would say that they are too far gone in any area of their lives. I pray, God, that you would encourage them right now. That hope would be renewed in them right now, Lord. That your strength would be restored, God. And that your peace would be theirs. God, do this work in our hearts and our lives today. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We always offer a moment to reflect at the end of every service. This is your moment. If you'd like us to pray with you, write it down on the connection card. Maybe you'd say, Aaron, today I gave my heart to Christ. And I just want to celebrate that with you. Or others of you say, Aaron, this is an area of my life that I believe I've gone too, I'm too far gone in. And I want you to pray with me. Would you write it down on your connection card and put it in the offering bucket as they go by? We'll pray with you this week and believe God for transformation in your life. But take just a moment, think about that, and we'll close the service.